You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host once again today is Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This is episode 82 of Lighthearted, scheduled for September 28th, 2020. But we're actually recording this on August 26th, and this date has some special significance. That's right. 100 years ago, on August 26th, 1920, The 19th Amendment was officially adopted, giving women the right to vote. And that ties in very nicely with the main subject of this episode, which concerns women at lighthouses. But let's go back to September 28th. This Again, this episode will be released on September 28th. And what are some of the things that have happened on that date, Cindy? Well, Jeremy, on September 28th, 1066, William the Conqueror landed in England, beginning the Norman Conquest. Oh, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) And on this date in 1928, Alexander Fleming noticed a bacteria-killing mold growing in his laboratory and discovered what later became known as penicillin. Also on this date in 1934, the French actress Bridget Bardot was born. She once said, quote, I say what I think and I think what I say, unquote. Hmm. Well, everyone should probably think what they say before they say it. As far as saying what you think, well, I guess that's good to a point. (laughs) Right. Sometimes a little filter is a good thing. Yes. So, Cindy, (laughs) did you know that at least 5% of the lighthouse keepers in the United States between 1820 and 1859 were women? Wow, no, I didn't know that. Well, it's true. That's right. There are hundreds of female principal keepers and assistant keepers under the lighthouse service in the United States. And there are also quite a few women keepers in Canada, the UK, Australia. In fact, there are still some female keepers in Canada. I interviewed one of them, Karen Zakaruk, for this podcast recently. Our guest today has written a new book called Guiding Lights on Women at Lighthouses. Not just keepers, but family members as well. Cindy, please help me tell our listeners about Shona Riddell. Sure, Jeremy. Shona Riddell, who lives in New Zealand, has been writing for as long as she can remember. Both of her parents were writers, and Shona's first article was published in 2000 in the New Zealand Herald. She was hooked, and in 2002, she completed a graduate diploma in journalism from the Auckland University of Technology. Since then, she's worked as a magazine writer, web writer and editor, and as content marketer for several companies. Shona's first book, The Tale of the Anzac Tortoise, was published in 2014. It told the story of a tortoise from Gallipoli that was brought to New Zealand after World War I by Shona's great-great-aunt, a nurse in Cairo. Her second book, published in 2018, was Trial of Strength. It was a history book about the sub-Antarctic islands, and it included another family story, this time about Shona's British ancestors and their ill-fated residence on the Auckland Islands. Shona's latest book, Guiding Lights, shares the stories of lighthouse women from around the world and through the centuries, including heroic female keepers, isolated families, dedicated caretakers, and the lingering ghosts of old lighthouses. The book includes more than 100 photos, paintings, and portraits, and also extracts from poems, books, and old newspaper clippings. 
The book is published by Exile Publishing, that's E-X-I-S-L-E Publishing, and is being released in October. Shona lives with her husband and two young daughters in Wellington, New Zealand, and she says she likes cold weather, being near the ocean, and learning about remote locations. Unsurprisingly, Shona says her next book will also involve history and remote locations. I had the pleasure of speaking with Shona Riddell recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking with Shona Riddell in New Zealand. I think this is the farthest away of anybody I've interviewed for this podcast yet. So thank you so much for joining me, Shona. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeremy. And it's almost like talking through a time machine in a way because it's, uh, it's a little after 7 p.m. here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on Monday. But uh, where you are, Shona, it's Tuesday. What time is it? Tuesday morning after 11 a.m.? Just after 11 o'clock in the morning. That's right. Yeah. So we're, we're a day ahead. How, is, how are things on Tuesday in New Zealand? Uh, well, looking out the window, um, slightly cloudy, a few light showers, otherwise good. <laughs> All right. So Shona, your new book, Guiding Lights, is very beautiful. I've had a chance to look at an electronic copy of it, and we'll talk more about when that's coming out and everything. But let me ask you, first of all, what led you or what was your inspiration for writing a book on women at lighthouses? Well, I'm, I'm definitely interested in remote locations and people who live and work far away from, from everyone else and challenging conditions. So that was definitely part of it. But also here in Wellington, where I live, there used to be New Zealand's first and only female lighthouse keeper, whose name was Mary Bennett. And she was a lighthouse keeper in the 1850s and 60s for 10 years. And she was a widow with six children. So she was solo parenting and running this lighthouse by herself. So I became very interested in, in her story and how she came to be there and running a lighthouse. And I also was interested that she was the only one in the country, the only woman who was officially appointed lighthouse keeper. And so then that took me further abroad. And I thought, well, if there were a woman like Mary Bennett running lighthouses, there must have been some women in other countries as well. Hmm. And of course they were, and particularly in the US, which I found really fascinating. Here in this country, uh, some of the women keepers are, are very well known. Others have been more or less forgotten. And uh, I know you know the book, uh, Women Who Kept the Lights by Mary Louise Clifford and her daughter, uh, Jay Candace Clifford. That was probably the first book that went into a lot of detail on the lives of female keepers. It was published in 1993, but they, they covered keepers only in the United States. It's a very comprehensive book on that subject, but you've expanded the scope to include women and not just keepers, but family members and so forth in several countries. I'm wondering if the Clifford's book was one of the influences on you. Yes, well, it was definitely one of the first books I came across when I was doing my, my research on lighthouses and I actually own two copies of it in my extensive collection, so um, two different editions. And it must have been really groundbreaking at the time, I imagine, in, in the 1990s to have a book come out about female keepers with these previously unknown stories um, about these women. And what particularly surprised me was how many were not only at lighthouses, because I, I knew there were lighthouse families and wives of, of male keepers and daughters who did a lot of important work, but particularly women who were officially appointed by the government as official keepers. And I was interested to learn about Stephen Pleasanton in the 1820s and 18, to the 1850s, who was the superintendent 
of lighthouses and he seems to have been quite a conservative practical person but he actively championed widows being appointed keepers um, and obviously that was more for pragmatic reasons rather than um, a, a desire to break through glass ceilings or anything but it must have been a lifeline for these widows who had suddenly lost their husbands or having this opportunity to run the lighthouse where they'd been living and look after their families there. And apparently they all did a, a fantastic job and a lot of them were commended for their hard work. And the other thing that surprised me was a lot of them were given equal pay. So even now in the 21st century, you know, that's still a matter of debate. And we're talking about the early 1800s when, you know, women didn't even have the vote. And yet these particular women were given management positions effectively running these lighthouses. Our country, the United States, had more, far more women keepers than any other country. That's a correct statement, right? I mean, yeah. I think, which is very interesting. And the fact that, you know, some, we'll talk about Ida Lewis in a few minutes, but she was the highest paid lighthouse keeper in the country more than any men in her time. That's uh, right. And, um, and she was paid um, partly because of her work in rescuing, wasn't she? So it was yes. sort of an, an added, added yeah. duty that she had. But those women, in a, and I'm sure they didn't see themselves that way, but in a sense, they were trailblazers of a, of a sort, even if they didn't realize it at the time. In your book, you give, uh, in the uh, first part of the book, uh, you give a, a good detailed history of lighthouses and lighthouse keeping, starting with the pharaohs of Alexandria and uh, going through uh, ancient Roman lighthouses, all the early history. And I'm wondering if that was your decision from early on that you wanted to give a, a good overview of lighthouses, not just about women at lighthouses, but for maybe for people who knew nothing about the subject coming in. I'm just wondering where that decision came in. Yeah, that's right. Because um, I, was, I was reading about these lighthouse keepers and then I decided I really needed to provide a bit of context as to how these lighthouses came to exist in the first place to explain then why they needed to be keepers appointed and and just the, the evolution of lighthouses from the, the ancient bonfires, which were lit as, as warning signals. And I probably went back a bit further than I'd originally planned because I go back to Greek mythology right at the beginning of the book. Because when I was reading about these bonfires, you know, on hills, I, it took me back to my school days learning about classics and Greek mythology and King Ag Agamemnon and the, you know, the Vestal Virgins and, and Hestia, Keeping, keeping the flames burning. So this idea of women as guardians of the light is obviously not a new concept. It's, it's gone back a long time. That's true. Yeah, you did tie that together really nicely. So good job on that. You. you have a substantial chapter on Grace Darling, the uh, English lighthouse keeper's daughter at the Longstone Lighthouse in England. I had the pleasure of visiting Longstone Lighthouse uh, three years ago on a U.S. Lighthouse Society tour. It's one of my favorite lighthouses I've ever visited. It was incredible. She, of course, was involved in a rescue in 1838 that made her famous around the world. Again, she was a keeper's daughter. She wasn't a keeper herself, but she was celebrated around the world. She was in her early 20s when the rescue happened and became very famous. Why do you think the story of Grace Darling captivated people so much at that time? Well, I think at its core, it's a story of, of heroism and bravery. So this idea of, of a young girl or young woman in her 20s uh, rowing out with her father to, to rescue shipwreck victims and, and literally saving lives. Um, a, it's a great story. But I think at the time also, 
Grace Starling embodied a lot of the characteristics that were valued in Victorian society. So she was, um, you know, family was important to her and duty was important. And because she'd grown up at lighthouses, she was obviously quite sheltered. And so her values were about being, um, you know, doing as she was supposed to and, and following her duty and, and kindness. And so I think it was an inspiring story, but also as a person, I think she was greatly admired because she was obviously very modest and all the sudden attention took her completely by surprise. Um, it was obviously very difficult for her because she was completely unprepared for it. Um, and she became sort of almost symbolic. But yeah, I think, I think she was admired, but also um, under a great, a great deal of strain. And when you read the story, I, I don't know, it sounds like she was taken advantage of by people who were, you know, trying to make some money and um, trying to benefit from that exposure. So she was obviously an incredible person to row out and, and save lives. And I know she encouraged her father to row out in, you know, pretty stormy weather. So the story itself is pretty incredible, but, you know, and then she only lived a few more years. I think the, all the fame and attention took its toll. Yeah. Oh, it's very true. It's a, it's an inspiring story, but it's also a sad story. The story of Grace Darling, for sure. And speaking of Grace, the Ida Lewis in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, in the late 1800s, was often referred to as the Grace Darling of America. She's probably the most—I would say—not only the most famous woman keeper in American history, but probably the most famous lighthouse keeper in American history. I can't think of any men who are better known than her. And she was also one of the most famous women in, in the U.S. in the late 1800s. Why do you think Ida Lewis became so famous in such a big way? I think for similar reasons in that she was performing very similar work. She was running the lighthouse with her family. And also she was rowing out, you know, in quite sort of cold, stormy weather and, and saving lives. Although unlike Grace, she performed these rescues again and again her whole life. I think, um, you know, her first rescue was as a teenager and then as a, um, in her 60s, she was still rowing out to fish people out of the water who got into trouble. So there's definitely a parallel between them. But on the other hand, Ida Lewis, A, she lived a lot longer than Grace. And B, as you said, she was appointed a keeper in her own right um, and, and paid a lot of money for it, um, which at the time was quite remarkable. And again, um, I think her story captured the public imagination. For, well, having said that, for a long time, her rescues went unacknowledged, didn't they? Um, and it was only at one point where one particular rescue got into the papers and then the story spread. And then she received uh, similar levels of attention to Grace and that there were marriage proposals and, and gifts and money and awards. Um, and so all that must have been completely overwhelming as well, I imagine. But perhaps because Ida Lewis was slightly older or just a different character, she was able to take it more in her stride, although I'm sure at times the attention became quite wearying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she was, I think, stressed out by, by all of it. And uh, for instance, uh, when Susan B. Anthony visited Ida, she said that, that that visit was much more stressful than any of her rescues. So she was extremely modest and didn't like being paraded through the streets of Newport in the 4th of July parade in 1869 either. She uh, definitely didn't care for any of that. Before we move on and talk about keepers in other places, who were some of the other United States uh, women lighthouse keepers that you found most interesting? Well, um, Kate Walker springs to mind. So she was the keeper at um, Robins Reef in New York and 
I, I sort of related a little bit to her story, not because I've ever been a lighthouse keeper, but because she was a mother of two. And when she arrived at the lighthouse, I remember reading that she was about to give birth to her second child. And of course, she'd never seen this lighthouse before. And it was surrounded by the water with not even a bit of land for the garden, you know, and she loved gardening. And I suppose I really felt for her just because I, I could almost see it, the idea of arriving at, at this tiny lighthouse and you know, not even with a garden and just having to adjust to that life. And even though she was so close to, you know, a bustling metropolis in New York, her life was completely isolated. And I know that she came to love it. And of course, she was eventually appointed keeper um, and she didn't want to leave. So that was one story that I, I enjoyed. And another was Harriet Colfax at her Michigan City lighthouse. And what what interested me, I suppose, was that she wasn't a widow or a, um, a daughter of a keeper, but had independently decided to become a lighthouse keeper, which at the time was possible. And obviously, she had worked very loyally for a long time. At one point, I know she was considered the oldest um, and the longest working lighthouse keeper in America. In the, in 50 the years, right? Yeah. If yeah, 50 years. Yeah, in, in the early 1900s. And just her dedication seemed extraordinary that, you know, every night she was lighting more than one light, wasn't it? Because she had to cross the, the stormy pier, which was often slippery and had large waves crashing over it. And so even though she wasn't famous in the manner of Ida Lois, for example, she was a real hero, wasn't she? Oh, she absolutely was. So let's uh, go back to Mary Jane Bennett. You mentioned Mary Jane Bennett in New Zealand earlier, and she was the first and only woman, woman lighthouse keeper in New Zealand, right? That's right. Uh, and I understand you also have a personal connection to her. What is that? Uh, so, yes, while I was researching the book, I found that her youngest son, William, is a great, great uncle. Um, and I always enjoy having family connections in my books. It just make, it makes it feel more tangible to me and, and resonate a bit more. Mary Bennett's story is quite fascinating to me because she grew up in England and she was the, the daughter of quite a wealthy squire in Yorkshire. So she'd had a very comfortable upbringing. And then a tradesman named George Bennett had arrived on the estate to do some work. They took a fancy to each other and her father frowned on the relationship because, you know, of the class difference. But obviously they were determined to stay together because they both sailed to New Zealand on separate ships. Um, so not quite eloping, but um, when they arrived in New Zealand, they got married. And so that's how she came to be here. And then about 10 years later, he was offered a job at Pencaro Lighthouse, which at the time was brand new. And when I say lighthouse, uh, it wasn't a tower. It was a, a two-room wooden shack with a lantern in the window facing out to sea. Um, so it was not the most effective lighthouse. And it sounds pretty grim, to be honest. They had a few children by then, and it was freezing cold. And whenever there was a storm, they had to evacuate and go and shelter in a, in a makeshift cave nearby in case the wow. house blew away. <laughs> um, and then just a few years later, poor George, her husband, was rowing back to the lighthouse with supplies when his boat overturned in strong winds, and he drowned. So... Like other female lighthouse keepers, that's how Mary came to be appointed as, as the official keeper of Pencaro. Um, and by all accounts, she did a, a great job. So she kept meticulous logs and, and did her job effectively. And this was all while raising her six children. 
children because um, when George drowned, she was pregnant with her sixth child. And her, so her, her baby that she had was William, who was my great-great-uncle. And so Mary ran the lighthouse for 10 years and then returned to England with her children to give her sons a, an English education, I think. But just five years later, all three of her sons came back to New Zealand. So they must have really missed the life over here. And William became the assistant keeper at the same lighthouse. So there's this real sort of in, intergenerational feeling of you know, multiple Bennets running the same lighthouse, which is, I think is really cool. Yeah. Oh, it's and it's really cool that you are able to uh, kind of promote the the history, the the legacy of of Mary Jane Bennett, because I think uh, certainly in this country, most people aren't even lighthouse buffs aren't aren't aware of her. So your book will kind of spread the word in uh, a number of countries. So I think that's great. Uh, I understand there's another lighthouse keeper in your family tree as well. Can you tell me <laughs> yes. tell me about that? So, yeah. So I found I found another one. Um, so his name was John. John Rayner, and he was a lighthouse keeper for 40 years at various lighthouses around New Zealand in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And one of the lighthouses he worked at for several years was is at Pusica Point, which is one of the southernmost, uh, most remote, and I'd say challenging lighthouses in New Zealand. Very cold, difficult to reach, and um, rainy much of the year, very exposed. Uh, so life um, sounds like it was very difficult there for the early keepers and, and their families. How do you pronounce that? The name of that lighthouse again? Pusica. Pusica. Okay, I I never had, a lot of those uh, those names. I have no idea how to pronounce them. So there was uh, another lighthouse uh, keeper you wrote about in the book. Actually, a lighthouse keeper's daughter was Faye Catherine Howe in Australia. Uh, I had never heard of her before that I could remember. Uh, and she played an interesting role in World War One. Could you tell us about that? Sure. So Faye Catherine Howe was a girl who lived at Breaksea Island Lighthouse. And that's on an island uh, just, I think, about six or seven miles west of Albany, which is in Western Australia. Um, so it's on the western side. And she was there in the, at the outbreak of World War One. So when World War I began, she was about 15 years old. And so life on this lighthouse would have been very quiet for her. Um, it was really just her, her father, and an assistant keeper. And then all of a sudden, there was this mass exodus of Australia and New Zealand troops who were heading west. And Albany was one of their main departure points on the ships. So all of a sudden, this quiet lighthouse would have seen many, many ships sailing past, just filled with troops off to, to fight in this great war. And this was the last site that many of them had of, of their home um, before they, they headed off. And of course, many of them wouldn't have come back. And they didn't stop at the lighthouse, but they would have sailed quite close to it. And because Faye, Faye Catherine Howe knew semaphore, which is flag signaling to communicate, which was an important skill before, before radios were introduced, she was signaling to many of these young troops and they were signaling back um, through semaphore and apparently some of them were throwing messages and bottles off the ship, um, hoping that she would catch them. And some of them were communicating with her specifically and some of them were trying to send final messages to, to loved ones just as they were departing for war. And so she made sure that their messages were sent. And I know that many of them wrote to her 
from the front. And they, of course, they didn't know her name. So they addressed their letters to the girl at Brexy Lighthouse. Oh. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's just a, quite a poignant story. Yeah, so it's very, very poignant. And it points out that these women and, and people at Lighthouses in general did a lot more than just, I shouldn't say just, but did a lot more than keep the, the lights and the fog signals and in some cases rescue people. But there are so many other things uh, that they did that, that benefited people. There's a lot in your book about various aspects of life at Lighthouses. You go into a lot of detail, which is great. I always tell people lighthouse keeping isn't, isn't as romantic as you think. Uh, it was a rough way of life in many ways, partly depending on where you were. But what do you think were some of the most difficult aspects of life at lighthouses? Well, certainly in, in 19th century lighthouses that were remote, I can imagine just the sporadic delivery of supplies must have been one of the greatest challenges that they faced because, you know, their supply boats would be held up by bad weather and they would never quite know exactly when, when these supplies were going to arrive. So they had to depend very much on on themselves and be incredibly self-sufficient. Of, of course, some um, medical emergencies must have been a real challenge. You know, it's not like they had medivac helicopters the way we do now. And so um, I've, I have stories in the book of mothers and, and lighthouse keepers having to, you know, do, stitch their children's ears and, um, you know, bring out the lighthouse medical box and, and dig into it and just do whatever they could in the moment to, to handle illnesses and emergencies. It's pretty incredible to imagine these days. Just the isolation of, of some of these places is so extreme, and that had to uh, play so much uh, a big role in their lives. I know you've interviewed um, lighthouse keepers about, about loneliness, and I know some people thrive on, on loneliness, and, but I can imagine for other people it would have been a real challenge, especially in the days before uh, telephones and let alone internet. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, a lot, most lighthouse keepers, you know, adapted and maybe were suited to that kind of life, but there were certainly quite a few who weren't, as I'm sure you ran into in your, in your research. It wasn't a, a life that was for everybody by any means. You have a chapter in the book on ghost stories and other legends and mysteries at lighthouses. Were there a couple of, of those types of stories that kind of stand out in your mind? Yeah, so with the, the ghost stories, I originally I, I wasn't planning on writing a chapter about ghost stories, but then the more I read and researched, the more I realized that these stories are a part of the lighthouse history because, um, yeah, they involve often, obviously they involve real lighthouses, but often uh, real keepers or people who visited the lighthouse and maybe the stories have become embellished or exaggerated over, over time. But yeah, they're still quite fascinating and they're important for the preservation of, of lighthouses today because they, they draw so many visitors. Um, but to answer your question about particular stories, I suppose one that I particularly was interested in was the one about Theodore Jabeur, who if anyone's seen the musical Hamilton, they'll know she was the daughter of Aaron Burr, the third vice president um, who shot Alexander Hamilton in the Duel of Honor. And Theodosia Burr married a governor in South Carolina, but she was visiting or she was supposed to visit her father in New York. And so she boarded a ship, but her ship uh, went missing and was never seen again. And there were theories about what happened to her. Perhaps she, the ship was wrecked in a storm, perhaps uh, looted by pirates, perhaps she was kidnapped. But um, there were sightings of her ghost around Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, 
So, yeah, I, I think I was particularly interested in the Burr-Hamilton saga and this idea of poor Theodosia uh, wandering the beach looking for her possessions on this wrecked ship. You also cover the transition that's taken place in, in relatively recent years as lighthouses have been automated and uh, some of them discontinued. Stewardship is, uh, has gradually been transferred to various organizations, government agencies, private individuals. Some of the lighthouses in, in the U.S. have been auctioned. What is your feeling about this transition? I'll, I'll, I'll split. My, I was going to ask you another question, but I'll let you answer that one first. How do you how do you feel about this transition to the end of traditional lighthouse keeping and into other people being the stewards for the lighthouses? Well, in an ideal world, I'd, I'd like lighthouses to to have keepers in them because um, you know I think keepers have always played an important role, but. Speaking pragmatically, I know that technology involves, and um, so it's not surprising, given you know the changes we've seen over the centuries and millennia, that lighthouses continue to evolve in different ways. I suppose. Given what you found out in your research about what's happening to lighthouses now, do you feel optimistic about the future of lighthouse preservation? I feel optimistic about the preservation of some lighthouses. I love the fact that there are lighthouse societies and organizations that are, are working so hard to preserve the history and the towers. And I think it's so important because it is a, it's a really important part of our history around the world. Um, you know, countless lives have been saved by lighthouses and they, they really have shaped the world. And it's important that people can continue to visit them and learn from that history. Um, so I know that there are many lighthouses around the world that are being taken care of. But of course, the flip side of that, the, we are losing lighthouses. Some are being demolished. Some are being destroyed by, by the weather. Although I was interested to read that some lighthouses are physically being picked up and moved inland to um, extend their, their lives a bit longer, which um, is, is a pretty fascinating exercise, I imagine, to, to lift a, an extremely heavy tower and, and carry it inland. But I'm, I'm so pleased that all this work has been done to preserve the lighthouses. I'm pretty much in the same boat as you. I'm optimistic in the sense that there's so many people who care about them, but I think some of the more isolated ones are, are definitely in trouble. And the ones that are threatened by erosion, as you said, and high seas and so forth. Uh, you wrote about Karen Zacharuk at Cape Beale in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, one of the few women who's actually still an official lighthouse keeper today. Of course, Canada has over 50 staffed stations still, probably more than any other country that I'm aware of. Uh, I interviewed Karen Zacharik for this podcast not long ago. I loved talking with her. She's a really interesting person. So uh, they talk on occasion about de-staffing all the light stations in Canada. And as I said, they, they still have over 50 at this point, including several women. Would you have any comment on Karen particularly and about the other, other women who are lighthouse keepers today? Yes. Uh, well, I, I listened to that podcast interview you did, which I really enjoyed. And mm -hmm. yeah, and when I was writing the book and I discovered that A, there were still lighthouse keepers in the world um, and B, that there was Karen Zacharik, who's a, a female lighthouse keeper in particular, I was very excited um, and I, I really enjoyed getting to know Karen and, and hearing about her life on the light station. It's just fascinating that that even today there are lighthouse keepers still actively working. And like you say, they do so much more than just 
keeping the light burning, although obviously that's an important part. But they, you know, they protect the wildlife, they monitor the wildlife, and they do conservation work, they, they do important search and rescue. Um, so these are all things that computers can't replace. So I, I'm really pleased that there are still lighthouse keepers, and I hope they, they get to stay longer. Also, with in the case of Karen and the other lighthouse keepers on the British Columbia coast, they monitor the weather and sea conditions, and they play a very important role uh, with that also. Uh, so you live in Wellington, New Zealand, and Pencaro Lighthouse is at the entrance to the harbor there. That's a pretty well-known one. And you uh, wrote in the book about a visit there by bicycle. It was about a 45-minute 40, a bike ride, so it was not too long. It's not too hard to get there. What what struck me was just how windy it, it was. And Wellington is a windy city by nature. It's kind of like San Francisco in that respect, I think. But just standing up on that hill next to the lighthouse on what was a, a relatively mild summer's day um, and just shout, having to shout to be heard um, above, above the wind and trying not to get blown off really amazed me and just made me think, well, if it's like this on a nice day, what would it be like, um, you know, during a howling southerly, which is coming up from Antarctica, because um, southerlies can be quite prevalent here. And it's, of course, a lot of lighthouses are exposed to the weather. But when you imagine what life would have been like, um, trying to raise a family um, and doing pragmatic things such as, you know, cooking and, and laundry, it at the top of this very exposed hill while trying to run a lighthouse at the same time and getting up in the middle of the night to light the, the lamp and make sure it stayed lit, polish the glass and all the other things that they did. It just made it more, more tangible for me. So um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the trip and I, I enjoyed seeing the lighthouse up close because even though I live relatively close to it, I'd never visited it. And of course, lighthouses look a lot different close up than they do from afar. I was just thinking as you were describing being there, sometimes I, I tell people this and I, I'm always afraid they're going to think I'm crazy. And here I am saying it for our podcast audience. But when I visit a lighthouse, I often feel like they're trying to talk to me, like they have stories to tell, almost like they're speaking. Do you ever get that feeling? <laughs> I, did, I did have that feeling. Yeah, it, um, it really brings the history to life. And one thing I like about P and Caro lighthouses, they have a lot of information signs up the walkway towards the lighthouse that give you an overview of the history. So when the lighthouse was originally built, it was New Zealand's first permanent lighthouse. And it was put together with pieces that had come over by ship from England, which was quite common at the time. So it was sort of prefabricated and all the pieces were numbered and then they had to assemble them, um, which must have been quite a job. And the other thing that struck me about going there was just the remoteness of it, even though you know that lighthouses generally by itself when you're actually standing there and you have that perspective of looking back at the city even though geographically it's not that far it could almost be another world away but especially in those days it just really gives you an idea of how apart they were. Shona you wrote in your book that when you were working on a book about lighthouses people would light up quote light up uh, when they heard that's what you were working on why do you think people react that way what is it about lighthouses that captivate people so much well like you said i think um, lighthouses are, are romantic locations and um, a lot of people have an association with a particular lighthouse i've noticed that when i talk to people that they they usually have a story they like to tell me about a particular lighthouse they visited or a particular book they read 
that they really enjoyed. The other thing is that lighthouses are, are kind of universally recognised. I think everybody knows what a lighthouse is, regardless of which country they're from or which language they speak. Um, everybody knows what a lighthouse keeper is and, and the sort of work that they did. Although having said that, I, I didn't really know the, the details of the job, which I do now. But yeah, there's there's just sort of this appreciation and respect for lighthouses, I think, and they're very comforting. Um, and I think it was the historian Edward Rowe Snow who, in America who said that lighthouses are altruistic symbols um, for mankind, that you know, they were built to protect and to guide, which particularly now um, or whenever we're going through challenging times, it's just a very comforting idea of these lighthouses in the darkness mm-hmm. guiding us with their beams. Behind me in my bookshelves, I have some uh, Edward Rowe Snow books. I, I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times. He was a huge influence on me, so I'm so glad you, oh, you, wow. uh, you mentioned him. I, uh, I love the idea of the Flying Santa, which I know yes. he was active in and delivering the presents to the lighthouse children and families. Yeah, and I was so happy you included a, a bit about that in the, the book. That was a nice, nice bonus. I'm so glad you got that in. Still going on, by the way, uh, the Flying Santa oh, flights okay. to Coast Guard stations by helicopter. It's still a great tradition that still happens every Christmas season. Yeah, flyingsanta.org. It's a fun, fun thing to read about. So uh, would, you say, would you say that before you wrote this book, were you a lighthouse buff? Oh, well, I was definitely interested in lighthouses. Um, and now I've written the book, I certainly know more about them than I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if a lighthouse buff is someone who's enthusiastic about lighthouses and loves reading about them and, and seeing them, then yes, I'm a lighthouse buff. You certainly and are now, yeah. I like the word pharophile as well. Uh-huh. Or ph- pharologist is another word that's used for people who study lighthouses. Yeah, pharologist. I, I don't know if you can answer this, but I saw a reference that your next book has to do with remote places and I think with the ocean does it yes, but right. can you tell us can you tell us more specifically what your next book is uh, not yet sorry okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's very early days and it probably won't be out for another couple of years but it's safe to say that it will be a history book and it will be about remote locations and people with unusual jobs okay well <laughs> th- th- you're teasing us but thank you and, and uh, I really look forward to it whatever whatever it might be do you think you would have liked to be a lighthouse keeper yourself that's a good question. I think it depends on the location and the era. So I don't think I would have enjoyed being a lighthouse keeper in the 19th century in a very remote lighthouse. I think that I would have found that very difficult. But um, certainly now with um, you know the increased connectivity that we have, and um, I, I definitely would like to spend a summer as a lighthouse keeper, probably not my, my entire life. I definitely, I, I'm quite a solitary person and I like being near the ocean. So yeah, there would definitely be some pluses, but I think um, I also enjoy getting a full night's sleep and <laughs> modern comforts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I'm with you on that. We're speaking a little bit earlier, but people are going to be hearing this uh, on September 28th. At least that's the projected date at this point. And I know the book is coming out soon in the United States. So when is the book coming out? And How will people be able to buy it? Yes, so Guiding Lights will be on sale in the US on the 13th of October and in Canada. And people will be able to buy it from Amazon and and Book Depository and all all good bookstores, just the the usual places. I have one more question for you for for bonus points. Okay. Uh (laughs) What, What was your favorite part about working on this book? 
Oh, my favourite part. Well, speaking broadly, my favourite part is just the opportunity to travel remotely, um, especially this year when we, many of us don't have the opportunity to travel. And I just love learning about new places and reading specific details, you know, because history books can be quite dry with a lot of facts and figures. And I certainly have those in my book too. But what I'm interested in is, you know, what did it feel like to live in those places and to work there and, and raise families and, um, and to save lives. And so really my favorite part was just learning more about these particular women. So I'd, I'd heard about Ida Lewis and I'd heard of Mary Bennett, but to really get the opportunity to dig deeper, I suppose, was my favorite part. I call it the rabbit hole of research because, mm -hmm. you know, you could do it forever and yeah. you never quite know what direction it's going to take you in. Well, that's a good, good term for it. It absolutely is. It can be a, a rabbit hole. That's a good thing. You want to get lost in that, that rabbit hole for, for a while. So, Shona Riddell, I, I thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure meeting you and talking with you tonight. It's really a pleasure. Thank you, and you've really, really good. Uh, and you've done just a wonderful job with this book. I think it's a welcome addition to, to Lighthouse literature about women at lighthouses, but just for anybody interested in lighthouses at all, they have to get this book. So oh, thanks very much. Congratulations on the book. And again, thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks again to Shona Riddell, and I strongly recommend her book, Guiding Lights, to anyone interested in lighthouse history. I want to mention again also the book Women Who Kept the Lights by Mary Louise Clifford and J. Candace Clifford. There were three editions published, and the 20th anniversary edition published in 2013 is the best and most comprehensive. I believe it's now out of print, but you can find copies on Amazon. It's really one of the classic books on lighthouse history. And a while back on this podcast, we had Lenore Scomel as a guest. She wrote the best book on Ida Lewis, Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. And another woman mentioned in Shona's book is Connie Small, author of The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife. That's right. I was lucky enough to know Connie, and The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife is another classic about life at lighthouses. And while we're on the subject, I'll also mention the book Everyday Heroes, The True Story of a Lighthouse Family. I co-wrote that book with Simon Ponsart Roberts, who grew up at Massachusetts lighthouses where her father was keeper. You can still get Everyday Heroes from Amazon and other online book dealers. And The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife by Connie Small is still available in a new edition co-published by Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Portsmouth Harbor was the last light station where Connie and her husband lived. Right. The bottom line is that there are a number of good books about women at lighthouses, which is a wonderful thing. And Guiding Lights by Shona Riddell is an excellent addition to the list. Many thanks to all the staff, members, and volunteers of the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its chapters and affiliates. Go online to uslhs.org to learn more about all the things the Society offers. And if you enjoy this podcast, please help support it by making a donation or by becoming a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. If you listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Thank you to everyone who works to save lighthouses or history of any kind. What you're doing is important, and we're all on the same team. To all our faithful listeners and to newcomers, thanks so much for listening, and keep a good light. I'm
Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. 